Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today, uh, for that process, I am very happy to welcome uh, a man who uh, is the former uh, uh, public relations director of the New York Yankees. He uh, he now uh, is the president of Marty Appel Public Relations, as well as the author of Casey Stengel, Baseball's Greatest Character, as well as numerous other books, and that is Marty Appel. Marty, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you, Sam. Well, before we dive deep into uh, the, the Casey Stengel uh, aura, which really just goes all over the map uh, in New York City, um, I want to go back to Brooklyn and uh, have you talk about your Brooklyn roots. I enjoy talking about them. Thanks for that opportunity. I was uh, I was born in Brooklyn in 1948 on St. John's Place in uh, Bed-Stuy, and I uh, went as far as uh, half of first grade there before we moved to Queens. Um, but Brooklyn's important to me in, in a baseball sense. First thing is that I saw my first game ever in Ebbets Field and vividly remember it, although I don't remember who the Dodgers played or anything about the game especially, but I remember the atmosphere and I remember uh, we sat behind the screen uh, behind home plate and I was entertained all afternoon by Roy Campanella, who I thought was just fun to watch. I guess because of his squatty body or whatever, but number 39 was in my vision all day, and I still remember that. But importantly, um, my first real memory of a baseball event was the Dodgers winning the 1955 World Series, and from my second floor window on my brownstone on St. John's Place, literally I watched people dancing in the street. There were trolley tracks in the street, and people took to the street and were dancing just as legend has it. So that was fascinating to see. But what it did for me at age seven was uh, make me a Yankee fan. I felt terrible for the Yankees. <laughs> and I thought, like, I'm going to take up the cause of the underdog. I'm going to root for the Yankees, little knowing the history between those two teams. Right. So that day I became a Yankee fan and, wow. you know, this strange thing of being a Yankee fan in Brooklyn, but to have remained so the rest of my life. And also got a chance to work for them, which we might touch on a little bit later for sure. Um, but in terms of, of the Yankee lore, uh, and of course, it, like I was saying, Casey Stengel has been all over the map in New York City. He's been with the Giants, he's been with the Mets, he's been with the Yankees, he was with the uh, the Dodgers. And in fact, started with the Dodgers. So I thought that's where we could we could start. Was uh, uh, you sure. know, there's this really there's this really fun photo of him standing in the outfield, completely nonchalant, completely you know, with this young, cocky, brash uh, man. And and obviously, you know, sometimes he he's known uh, as a goofball, but you know, he was a great baseball player in his day. Well, he was a very good baseball player. He wasn't bound for the Hall of Fame, but he played 14 years. Uh, he hit 284, and had they had there been all-star teams back then, he probably would have been selected a couple of times, maybe three times, and he did wind up 
playing for four World Series teams, which was pretty notable. Um, his signing with Brooklyn was kind of a nice story. Um, he had, he was from Kansas City. The local Kansas City team had signed him and optioned him out, but he belonged to no one. He was playing uh, in Aurora, Illinois, in 1911. Wow, that's a long time ago. <laughs> in 1911. And uh, the Dodgers were in Chicago. And they had a scout, Larry Sutton, who just got a tip uh, to go out and watch the Aurora team, which he realized was just a direct train ride from Chicago. So by virtue of this being such a short and easy train ride, Sutton goes to Aurora and Casey is having his best minor league season there. He's just dominating the league. Zach Wheat, a Brooklyn outfielder who was also from Kansas City, knew the family and had told Sutton to keep an eye on Casey. Sutton liked Casey because he liked blonde hair, blue-eyed kids. He thought they were always fighters. That was what he said. So he saw Casey in Aurora and he signed him to a Brooklyn contract, and the following year, Casey was in the major leagues with the Superbas. And as they were called uh, then, the Superbas. And um, what year was that again? I'm actually spacing on it. Yeah, that was 1912. And, 1912, um, okay. So a year it was the last year of Washington Park. So Casey got right. to play in that final month of Washington Park, which was really a dilapidated, uh, sad excuse for a major league facility. But everybody was excited about moving into Ebbets Field the following spring. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and uh, he he had some uh, he he had some some notable uh, uh, items of interest. Didn't was he the one who handed off the grapefruit? Uh, that fell from the sky into Wilbert Robinson? Well, he gets a lot of credit for that stunt. This was an attempt to set a record for catching uh, a baseball from a height greater than the Washington Monument, something that had already been done. So during spring training, uh, a famous aviator at the time, a woman named Ruth Law, went up in a plane uh, and they were going to drop a baseball down to the uh, Dodgers' practice field in Daytona Beach. Wilbur, Rob- Wilbur Robinson, the uh, manager of the Dodgers, Uncle Robbie, was going to catch it. He was a former catcher. Um, Casey probably wasn't on the plane, but probably was an organizer of the stunt. And in any case, they forgot to bring a baseball up. So... <laughs> Ruth Law, knowing she had no time to go down and fetch a baseball, did uh, she improvised and she dropped a grapefruit from the plane, either she or somebody else on the plane. But in any case, this grapefruit came orbiting out of the sky. Uncle Robbie caught it against his chest where it exploded with great force, and he screamed, I'm killed, I'm killed. It's <laughs> not something you hear every day. <laughs> uh, exactly. Casey, Casey largely took the blame for that stunt because he was Casey, and they already knew he was capable of things like that. But uh, mm-hmm. as he later said, when you're young, you get blamed for things you didn't do, and when you're older, you get credit for virtues you never had. It all evens out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Well, so he batted uh, 316 that first year, went down to 272 the next year, uh, but batted 3 uh, 300 a couple times for the uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, in 1916, they went to the World Series. How did Casey do in that World Series, even though the Dodgers, of course, lost it? Dodgers lost it. Casey did okay, and the the big thing was he got to play in the same World Series as Babe Ruth. Now, Ruth mm-hmm. being left-handed, Casey, a left-hand hitter, did not uh, bat against Babe Ruth, although he did play against him in an exhibition game the following spring. But uh, there they were on the same field together. People are surprised when I tell them that Casey was actually four years older than Babe Ruth because we think of Babe as from so long ago, and Casey almost feels contemporary, but Casey was actually older than Babe Ruth. Interesting. Yeah, that that is interesting. And, and did they get along? Because obviously, you know, people uh, either got along with the Babe or, you know, Leo, Leo DeRocher. Yeah, well, DeRocher was an exception in a lot of things. Basically, Babe and Casey had these wonderful personalities and kind of got along with everybody. And they didn't have a lot of interaction over the years. But when Casey got married in 1924, uh, they had a celebratory party in New Rochelle, New York, at one of the uh, one of the resorts on Long Island Sound. And uh, Babe Ruth attended, not because he was invited, but because he was at a party in the next room. And he heard yeah. the Stengel's wedding reception was taking place, so he joined the fun. Um, that was about the only interaction between Babe and Casey. But uh, remember, baseball in those days was 16 teams, 400 players, and kind of everybody knew everybody. Exactly. And uh, so Casey gets traded, uh, I believe, in um, uh before the uh, 1918 season to Pittsburgh. Um, and that, that uh, of course, was a bummer to uh, the fans. You know, they, they really uh, had Casey to their heart in Brooklyn. Uh, but, obviously, you can't, you, you can't go past his, his playing time without talking about what he did when he came back. Right. <clears throat> but before I say that, I wanted to say that his time in Brooklyn was significant enough, his playing time, that before the Boys of Summer crew started to emerge in the late 40s, the teams of Jackie and Duke and Campy and all of that, any discussion of the great Dodgers in history would have included Casey as one of the possible outfielders. So he was pretty good in his time there, and the fans did like him. Now he gets traded to Pittsburgh, and um, when the Pirates come back to Ebbets Field, um, he gets booed, largely because he's now an opposing player, and that's what Brooklyn fans did. Anyway, in this first game back at Ebbets Field, uh, when an inning ends and Casey isn't due to bat, instead of coming into the dugout, he just strolls over and sits in the Brooklyn bullpen, because those are all his old friends there. In the bullpen... Uh, was a stunned sparrow who had flown into the wall and knocked himself out. Casey scoops up the sparrow and puts it under his cap. It's a little hard to picture this now because, you know, the caps were also flat then compared to today. But anyway, that's the story. He picks up the sparrow, he sticks it under his cap, and when he next comes to bat, the fans are booing, 
because he's a pirate, and to respond to the fans and being Casey Stengel, he tips his cap in a grand dramatic gesture. The sparrow, who's now recovered, flies out, and that was Casey's way of giving the fans the bird. <laughs> so um, they cheered him, and they cheered him ever after. They always loved Casey in Brooklyn. And then after Pittsburgh, he, he played in another uh, Pennsylvania town, Philadelphia. Uh, but then in 1921, he uh, went to the Giants. Yeah, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia was not very happy. He had really assimilated into New York City by then. He missed New York. He loved New York. When he got traded to the Giants in 21, oh, was he thrilled. He jumped off the training table in Philadelphia and ran onto the field and slid into each base in such joy. (laughs) He couldn't wait to get back to New York. Um, Interestingly, in Philadelphia in 1918, uh, He'd been drafted into the Navy in World War One, and um, his his assignment was to manage uh, a, a baseball team out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So his, it was kind of his first <laughs> managing assignment. <coughs> Excuse me, and um, that's what he did. He managed incoming teams from on ships that came into New York Harbor. And he learned that he always wanted to play them the day they arrived still, while they still had their sea legs and were wobbly on the baseball field. <laughs> anyway, he goes to the Giants, and he plays on three pennant-winning teams. And he, at the same time, learns so much about managing from John McGraw, he becomes a real McGraw disciple, even though McGraw tended to think of him as kind of a smart aleck. <laughs> Right, and, and so he gets a couple World Series uh, before, uh, obviously, they lost to the Yankees in 1923. And um, you know, it, what's, what's interesting about that first year, looking uh, uh, at 1921, is that he was hitting 305 for the uh, for the uh, the Phillies, but then hit only 227 for the for the Giants. Age 32. Didn't really matter. He was so happy to be in New York. He was platooned in New York because McGraw had a good team and enough players to teach Casey a little something about righty, lefty, lefty, righty platooning. Yeah. No, so he didn't get too many. That was something he became. That was something he became famous for later on with the Yankees. But that's where he first personally experienced it. I did want to say one thing before we abandon the 1923 season. Um, Mm -hmm. the Giants lost that World Series, the first one ever played in Yankee Stadium. But uh, Casey was a big star in that World Series, won two games with home runs, hit the first ever World Series home run in Yankee Stadium. And that was an inside the parker where he was already called old Casey Stengel in the newspapers, but he chugged around the bases, yelling out loud to himself, Go, Casey! Go, Casey! Go, Casey! And all the infielders heard him as he went by them. He thought he lost a shoe as he was running the bases. It was actually a little rubber inset, insole uh, used to protect a, his foot against an injury. But that flew out while he was running the bases. When he slid home, he said to Hank Gowdy, the on-deck hitter, I think I lost a shoe. And Gowdy looked at him and said, 
Well, how many were you wearing? Because <laughs> he still had two on. <laughs> Another great Casey moment. Yeah, there, there's, you know, the whole, the whole history is filled with them, uh, of, of baseball history. And it's remarkable how many years uh, Casey was around that we have to talk about. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm actually at a loss as to what his first uh, major league managing experience was. Was it Brooklyn or did he have something before that? Brooklyn was the first major league experience. Um, okay, so, so yeah, they, they bring him back. Uh, they bring him back to Brooklyn, you know, obviously at that time, uh, from the, from the Dodgers standpoint, uh, they're, they're in disarray, you know, with the depression setting in and, and it's the middle of the thirties and Casey comes back. There there was probably a lot of uh, um, expectations uh, going into that all around, you know, whether it, whether it be with the team or with the, with Brooklyn. Well, I don't know about the expectations. The team had no money, it was the depression. It wasn't like they were going to suddenly find some money and get some better players. They were a pretty lousy ball club. Uh, Casey had been a coach in 32 and 33 for Brooklyn, and he was so happy to have that job and have any job during the depression because he and his wife, Edna, had been wiped out by the depression and the stock market crash. Mm-hmm. So he was thrilled to be a coach. Then Max Carey got fired after the 33 season, and Casey, the coach, was uh, they called him and said, you're going to be the manager. And he wanted to make sure that was okay with Max Carey because he had a loyalty to Carey, and Carey assured him that was fine. You know, you don't take it, obviously somebody else will. So Casey became the manager, and he had a band of characters there in Brooklyn, Frenchie Bordegaray with his mustache, and... Um, just Van Lingomungo, who we know mostly because of his memorable name. But there wasn't a, a, a lot of talent on that team, and they didn't fare very well. No, no, they didn't. But uh, from 1934 and the rivalry with the Giants, there is a notable I, – I don't have the quote in front of me, but um, I think it goes all the way back to when Bill Terry said was, was – um, yeah, uh, is Brooklyn still in the league? And well, that's sort uh, of what Casey led to Carey's firing because mm-hmm. he didn't respond to that. Uh, and the Charles Ebbets, the owner of the team, was like, "You're not going to respond. You're not going to rally the fans." Right. Terry had said, "The Dodgers are they still in the league?" When asked, uh, you know, how he thought the season would go. So that led to Carey's dismissal and to Casey's elevation, and Casey immediately responded to uh, the taunt from Bill Terry, and the owners were very happy with that. Right, and they got a chance, I believe, to knock uh, the Giants uh, away from the pennant. So even though they were they were 71-81 and sixth in the National League, uh, they got a chance. Any Anytime uh, Brooklyn gets a chance to knock the Giants down, that's a, that was a good thing in, in Brooklyn's eyes. So Yeah, uh, absolutely. And... and yeah, and Casey, Casey, I, I believe had some quote uh, when they they were able to do it, but I, I don't have that in front of me right now. But um, so he gets fired by by the Dodgers, and uh, he goes off to the Pacific Coast League after right after that, or or uh, what's Casey's story there? Well, before we leave Brooklyn, uh, we have mm-hmm. to talk about the death of Len Kanicki. Now, Len Kanicki was a three hundred hitter for Casey. 
uh, his first year. And then in the second year, 35, wasn't doing as well, but uh, was still, you know, a veteran player of some with pretty good respect in the league. And unexpectedly, Casey released Konecki with two weeks left in the season at a time when rosters could be expanded. It was really like a surprising move to release Konecki. Um, Konecki, very depressed, got drunk, had to charter a plane to fly home to Buffalo. He was released in Chicago. And on that flight, that ill-fated flight, he gets into a fight with the pilot and the co-pilot, because he was drinking, to protect the plane and themselves. One of them hits Kanicki over the head with a fire extinguisher that was in the cockpit. Kanicki dies from the blow of the fire extinguisher. And, oh my gosh, this is a death of an active player who had just been released in the in the middle of September. It was a huge story at the time. Today, nobody knows this story. Um, right. And Casey, forever after, harbored some guilt and responsibility over this. I mean, nobody ever expects a player to wind up in a situation like that. But uh, he second-guessed himself many times over the years about the sadness of that story. Yeah, that's that's very tragic, and I didn't know it, and and now I've got it got it open as a tab, so I'm going to explore that a little bit more. That's for sure. Um, yeah, that was uh, one of the major he, things he that like, happened when he managed Brooklyn. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's that's why we uh, we have these podcasts to to uh, keep keep uh, unfolding the the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers tale. So I appreciate that, Marty. Okay. Thank you. Sure. And and. Um, so, where, where does Casey go after after that whole? Uh, so was that was that the 1935 season, by the way, or was that the 1935? Yeah, that was 35. He's still back to manage well, 36. 36. The team is still lousy in 36, and although he had a contract for 37, they fire him, even mm-hmm. though the team was broke. Uh, they still chose to pay Casey not to manage in 37. And it was the only year he was out of the game uh, in that whole span that started in 1910 and went through 1960 with the Yankees. So he's out of the game in 37, and what do you know? He invests in an oil field in Texas in 1937 that comes in (laughs) and makes him a rich man for the rest of his life. The Wells struck oil and is still pumping oil to this day, and the Stengel Estate gets a check every year for the oil produced on this Texas oil field. That's remarkable uh, to hear, because uh, a lot of people don't know that about Casey. It, it, but, right. you know, obviously obviously there he could have retired in some fashion, but baseball is his life. Baseball really was his life. Um, he had no hobbies. He didn't golf, he didn't fish, he didn't hunt, he didn't play cards, um, he didn't go to the movies. (laughs) Baseball, when he wasn't managing or playing or watching baseball, he was reading the sporting news. His whole life was baseball. His universe was baseball people, which extended to the fans. He never big-leagued anybody. He always enjoyed uh, being with the fans, uh, 
talking to them, uh, reviewing the game. He didn't mind doing that at all. He enjoyed being recognized. He had a listed address and phone number in the phone book. So he was really a baseball guy for the people. Uh, exactly, and and I can't believe that I slipped on the fact that he was with the, uh, the Boston Braves before uh, going to the Pacific Coast League. Yeah, he went after thirty. After he was out in thirty-seven, he went to the Boston Braves. They were called the Bees in those days, right? And they were just as lousy as uh, as the Dodgers had been. And he finished seventh pretty much every year with Boston. Uh, the last year with Boston was nineteen forty-three when just before opening day, crossing Kenmore Square in Boston, where the big Chevron sign is today, um, he got run over by a taxi around midnight on a dark and rainy night. Uh, That put him out for three months. And a columnist in Boston wrote that the taxi driver should get an award as the man who did the most for Boston baseball in 1943. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, so Casey was starting to wear out his welcome there. Right, exactly. Uh, he was there for, for many years, too. Uh, so what what was it about Casey then that didn't make him, from a, from a wins-loss standpoint, a successful manager? I think everybody just acknowledged that he – played for poor franchises that didn't have the money for great right. players, and he did he did the best he could. Um, then, as now, the poor teams are ultimately going to uh, generally finish deep in the standings. Um, if you've just come on as a baseball fan these days, it's hard to appreciate that because today all the teams are rich due to national television money and local cable deals. But back then, Mm -hmm. you know, the income was really just ticket sales and little souvenirs and concession sales, and that was it. So uh, if you were drawing three or 400,000 fans a year, you weren't making a lot of money. Right, exactly. And so what what team did he uh, uh, manage in the Pacific Coast League between these years before we pick up with the Yankees? Um, he managed uh, Oakland very successfully. Uh, he enjoyed life in Oakland. He and his wife were living in California by then. And uh, he could have been very happy continuing with Oakland and ultimately retiring from Oakland. They won the Pacific Coast League Championship in 1948. And again, today's fans have to appreciate that when there were only 16 Major League teams, those AAA clubs, especially the championship clubs, were as good as major league teams are today when you have 30 teams. Um, just mathematically, you'd figure 16 teams then, the 14 next best teams in AAA would have been the equivalent of major league teams today. So Casey winning the 48 Pacific Coast League Championship drew a lot of applause and acknowledgement of his abilities And when the Yankees had a vacancy for 1949, they reached out and hired Casey Stengel, much to the consternation of baseball purists who thought they've hired this clown who never had much success in the National League, was new to the American League, was suddenly being asked to manage Joe DiMaggio and the mighty Yankees, and could there have been a dumber move that the Yankees could have made? 
And uh, I know that Larry McPhail, who was there right after Casey Stengel with Brooklyn, uh, was part of this uh, this uh, these Yankee years. Um, and but no, actually uh, he was wasn't, life. Sam. Uh, oh, he was gone me, by me. He, he, yeah, by he was gone after the '47 World Series. So it was right, Topping right, and okay. Webb who were the owners, and George Weiss, his Casey's old friend, was the general manager, and he was the one that reached out and got Casey. And so '47 was was Larry's last year, um, which, and I, I have to say that I'm I'm that close to finishing the Larry McPhail biography. So. There, there I am, uh, being, <laughs> you know, showing okay. that ignorance. But uh, with the the uh, so he comes aboard in '49, and obviously, you know, they have immediate success. They win the World Series. From my from my perspective, uh, you know, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to ask about it from the Brooklyn angle and, and Casey Stengel. So they make the World Series. The the Dodgers are are in it again against them. And so what, what, what does Casey say, you know, uh, what, what's Casey's angle uh, to all of this uh, when it comes to facing his old, uh, his old team? Um, well, he'd been long removed by, from Brooklyn by that point, and new generations of fans had come along who didn't really identify him with Brooklyn at all. Um, still, there were, at that World Series gathering, uh, there were reunions of the 1916 Brooklyn Dodger team, uh, of which Casey was a part and which the Dodgers went to the World Series. So that drew him back to Brooklyn to the St. George Hotel where they celebrated uh, the anniversary of that 1916 team. And um, Casey was like the, the MC and the host of introducing all his old teammates. It was a wonderful feel-good event. But, of course... Uh, he was delighted to win that 49 World Series, which, you know, was such a shining star on his resume after so many years as a mediocre to bad manager of National League teams. And he proceeded to knock off five straight world championships with the Yankees, something that will probably never be accomplished again in baseball. He beat Brooklyn in 49. He beat Brooklyn in... 52 and 53. Um, those were great rivalries and fabulous Brooklyn teams in case he prevailed. Uh, so I, 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 this is really funny in terms of the uh, the record and and you know they won so many world uh, world championships. They went to uh, a couple that they uh, they lost as well. Uh, uh, three, in fact, that during that stretch. Uh, and in 1954, they, it's the only time that he won 103, 100 games with the Yankees, 103 to be exact, uh, but they finished second. Yeah, Cleveland was unbelievable that year with 111 wins, so um, nobody admonished Casey for finishing second to that kind of a Cleveland team. Um, what, what it did, though, for the Yankees was um, – it gave them an excuse and impetus to finally integrate their club in 1955. Uh, the Dodgers now then had Jackie and Campy and Nuke, and the Giants had Monty Irvin and Willie Mays, and the Yankees were still an all-white club. And the excuse was, hey, we win the World Series every year. There's no reason to shake things up here. But when they finally didn't win in '54. That opened the door for Elston Howard to join the Yankees in 55. 
And to Casey's credit, he made the Yankee clubhouse a very welcoming one for Elston Howard. There were no problems with Ellie joining this team, not even among the old guard Southern coaches like Bill Dickey and Jim Turner. And Hmm. the Howards, Ellie and Arlene, loved Casey Stengel. They thought he was terrific. So uh, it was a, you know, then as now, race is such a tough issue in the United States. But Casey, I think on balance, comes out okay on it. Yeah, I would agree uh, on that. And uh, what what was his response for 55, uh, uh, losing the World Series to to the Dodgers? Well, he wasn't happy about it, <laughs> even though it was the first time Brooklyn ever won, and it was the World Series that made me a Yankee fan. Um, he was he was an unhappy guy, and he couldn't wait to have another shot at it. And sure enough, he did in '56 when he got to play Brooklyn yet again. And this time, with Don Larson pitching a perfect game uh, in Game Five, and Johnny Cooks winning it all in Game Seven. Uh, the Yankees were back on top and had knocked off Brooklyn one more time. So that is a good question right there. Do you think that Don Larson's perfect game in the World Series could potentially never be matched at, at this point? Um, hard to say. I mean, it, no hitters and perfect games are harder to achieve today because of the emphasis on pitch counts. Um but if you're pitching a perfect game or a no-hitter in the World Series, uh, I kind of think you can go for it because there's not that much concern about your pitch count since you're going to be off the whole winter anyway, especially if it's one of the last games of the series as it was with Larson. But it's mm-hmm. just such a rarity anyway. Uh, you know, we could see it. Uh, rarities happen, but... Uh, what an amazing thing that was at the time. I was such a young boy, and I still remember the talk of the town, Don Larson, what an accomplishment that was, and all of us learning what a perfect game was. There hadn't been one in baseball regular season since 1922, so it was wow. such a strange thing to people. And and considering, I believe, what was it, game five? Was that correct? Yes, so it was it was it was very clutch moment for the uh, the, the Yankees. If you, you know that that really turned the tide on the series. Oh, it did, and of course you can't say enough about what a great great Brooklyn Dodger team that was. People have asked me, do you think any manager could have had Casey's success uh, given the stars he had? And my answer is that while it's possible because of all the stars he had beating that Brooklyn Dodger team of Snyder and Hodges and Campanella and Reese and Robinson and Ferrillo. And, uh, you know, that was one of the great teams ever assembled, and yet Casey kept beating them. So, uh, I don't know, it, it almost magnifies his run of world championships. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with you on that one, that's for sure. Um, so... You know, we're getting to the the end uh, of the the uh, the Yankees era, uh, but he still had a couple more tennis and World Championships to win after '56. Um, and he uh, obviously the uh, the crescendo of of 1960, that World Series, that 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 um 
that unfortunately put an end to his Yankee tenure. Yeah, he was 70 years old. Um, the Yankees wanted to make a move to go to a younger manager, Ralph Houck. <clears throat> they lost the 60 World Series. Casey got a lot of heat for mismanaging the pitching rotation. Um, so uh, he gets fired after right after the 1960 World Series loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I think the real reason was Ralph Houck. He was the manager in waiting. Everybody thought the world of his abilities. Uh, The Yankees didn't want to lose him. Boston and Detroit were pursuing Houck, and the Mm. Yankee ownership was like, well, you know, we could go with Casey for another year or two, but we lose Houck in the process. We're going to get some bad PR on this, but we got to do it. And they did. So Casey gets fired by the Yankees, and he says, I'll never make the mistake of being 70 years old again. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he sits out the 61 season working on um, his own memoir. And 62, the New York Mets are born. Uh, their big goal is to win over a fan base of disenfranchised Dodger and Giant fans who were still bitter about losing their teams. So they hired Casey largely for PR purposes to win the hearts of New York National League baseball fans. And boy, did he accomplish that. And he's he said that, uh, you know, it, it seems as if, you know, as, it, maybe it's just because I'm biased coming from the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, angle, but it, it just seems like he identifies with the National League of New York uh, more than, than he did with the Yankees, even though the, the most success he ever had was in the AL. It's totally correct. Um, He was a lifelong National Leaguer, except for that 12 years with the Yankees, where he just, you know, punched his ticket to the Hall of Fame and became a baseball immortal. But the rest of his life was all as a National Leaguer, both as a player, as a manager. And now here he was back in the polo grounds where the Mets started, where he had played for John McGraw uh, in the 1920s. And there's some really famous uh, videos of, of him being interviewed. Obviously, you know, there's there's not too much uh, actual uh, game footage in terms of, you know, being able to find an entire, like, three-hour game and see him, see how he, he goes about managing at this point, uh, uh, and which we'll get to as well. But um, one of the, the, the famous Mets videos, uh, as I am a Mets fan, so I can identify there, um, is him, you know, saying they're not going to say mama. The babies won't say mama. They won't say papa. They'll say messy with the polo grounds in the background. <laughs> he was, uh, yeah, away with words, Stengelese. Uh It was called The Writers Loved Him, and he sold the hell out of the Mets uh, with right. his charm, with his Metsies, Metsies, Metsies. Even when they opened Shea Stadium, and he said at the press conference, well, they got 23 restrooms here. And I got to use one right now, and that was the end of the press conference. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, even though they they were losing the whole time, the fact that you know that they understood that they were going to be losing, um, and that he had to win over the, the fan base, and it almost makes it fitting in regards that 
that and very you know messies like especially with when you think about what's going on with them now how they just keep out messing themselves <laughs> you know uh, currently in the current messian world but with 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 Casey you know it's like it it, it that was the whole point come see they're, they're amazing and that that's almost what what makes the mess endearing in many regards is that you know you're you're gonna you're gonna see something entertaining whether it's winner winning or losing. Well, the Mets got so much right in that first year. I mean, they didn't draft very well. They had a terrible team. But when you think about it, um, their logo, their song, their mascot, the fans with their banners, uh, the Let's Go Mets chant, Casey with the word amazing, just hiring Casey, all of these turned out to be brilliant moves that are, you know, still have its effect today on the franchise they did so much right in that very first year. Um, Casey, interestingly, was not really the manager he had been at the Yankees in terms of being engaged in the game and thinking three innings ahead and really manipulating lineups. Uh, he kind of left that to his coaches by the time he got to the Mets. And even to Richie Ashburn, his center fielder, who sort of managed the team from center field while the games were in progress. Uh, Casey could be seen dozing off, actually, in the dugout. That was a true thing, not a myth. But that wasn't important. His his importance was in talking to the writers after the game, in the bars of the hotels, on the road trips, selling the Mets and winning over the fans, and he did it. Yes, he did, and he was attached to uh, the Mets' side for the rest of his life. Yeah, he hated the Yankees because they had fired him. He never forgave them for that. And he cheered for the Mets until he died in 1975. Always signed autographs. Let's go Mets, Casey Stengel. <laughs> and and they actually played uh, the, they played the Yankees in the mayor uh, what was it, the mayor's trophy uh, back then. Yeah, um, most famously the first one back in Yankee Stadium, which was Casey's return, uh, when the Yankee ushers and ticket takers blocked Mets fans from coming in with their signs and their banners, which Casey called placards. (laughs) And uh, that wasn't permitted at Yankee Stadium for a good reason. Was that first one 1962? um, Yes, it was. And... um, (laughs) <laughs> so it was um, the Yankee ushers tried to stop the fans from coming in with their placards, and this was a big controversy that day, the uh, yeah. culture of the Mets fans versus the Yankees fans. Was born. Uh, and did they win that first one, am I correct? I know they won some with Casey still managing. I have no recollection of that. <laughs> if anybody remembers the scores of Mayor's Trophy games, I salute them. Right. Right, exactly. And I'm wondering why they would have success. You know, I guess the, uh, it, it would be the idea that the, the Mets are definitely going to play hard and the Yankees might just be like, eh, whatever, this is, you know, not not that big of a deal anyway. I think that was the case. I mean, it was a fundraiser for Sandlot Baseball in New York, and neither team played their regulars, although 
the Mets regulars would have been worse than the Yankee reserves. But so be it. It was just an entertaining game. I used to go. I used to think this is a great thing to see. Yankees and Mets yeah. get to see the home, the two home teams. But they really were seldom interesting games. Right. Exactly. And, um, well, to uh, I, uh, before I ask you some, uh, some questions about uh, yourself, um, I'd like to give you the last word with Casey Stengel, whatever you, you want to end with. just want to end with the fact that he's been gone a long time now. He died in 1975. A lot of people under 40 have no familiarity even with his name, let alone his accomplishments. But the MLB Network named him the greatest character in baseball history, which was the spark that ignited the idea for doing this book. And uh, the book's been well-received. It's in its third printing now. So I'm really pleased that I've kind of made Casey Stengel relevant again, and people are kind of aware of his importance in baseball history, 55 years in uniform, um, and the only man to wear the uniforms of Brooklyn Dodgers, New York Giants, New York Yankees, and New York Mets. Yep, exactly. And... Uh, it, it it's funny because somewhere out there, for some reason, and it's weird how this worked back then, but Babe Ruth was photographed in a Giants uniform for some uh, uh, exhibition game that was also a fundraiser. I forget what year, but I saw the photograph, and and it's pretty remarkable that uh, you know he didn't. He obviously Babe couldn't become a Met. Uh, he could never be photographed uh, as a New York Met, but he is photographed uh, as a Yankee, as a Giant. And as a Dodger, and and uh, but Casey has one up on him. Well, Casey has one up, and it's all very legitimate, of course. Right, exactly, of course. And um, so, before we uh, we end, I just wanted to talk a, a little bit about uh, how you got into public relations. Um, in the '60s, when I was in college, I wrote a letter to uh, the PR director of the Yankees, Bob Fischel looking for a summer job. Uh, I didn't even expect an answer. I thought he'd get thousands of letters like that. But it turned out he didn't. Uh, Not too many college students in the 60s were focused on a career in baseball, and I was. So he had my letter, and then Pete Sheehy, the Yankees clubhouse man, rolled in a bunch of cartons of unanswered Mickey Mantle fan mail into his office saying this stuff's got to be answered or uh, you're going to have a lot of unhappy fans. So there's my letter and there's all those Mickey Mantle letters and Fischl invites me in for an interview and hires me to answer Mick's fan mail. So that was my start all the way back in 1968. I'm kind of the last guy standing who worked in the original stadium Uh, who worked when Mickey Mantle was still playing. And I've gone on from there for a very happy and long career in and around baseball, in and around the Yankees. Yeah, and it's magnificent to, uh, uh, you know, just to imagine what it is that you've seen, you know. And uh, it's a remarkable uh, career that you have had, and uh, I really appreciate all the the uh, you know historical uh, uh, fashions of your of your work when it comes to uh, 
your authorships. And so I appreciate you coming on board and uh, giving us this Casey Stengel perspective as well as yours. Thank you. I hope people discover Casey anew with the book. Um, if you've got Yankee fans listening, Pinstripe Empire, which is still in print, is the definitive history of the team, which was my honor to do a few years ago. So um, I've been a good observer of the passing of baseball history through the years. It's almost a straight line for me since 1955, let alone the fact that I went to work in the game in 68. But from 55 on, it's kind of all in my head. <laughs> and and it's brilliant that uh, it starts with the parade. of uh, Well, not really the parade, but just the, the party that was going on in Brooklyn that day. And uh, before, yeah, we, spontaneous... before we leave then... Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say that before we leave, uh, I'll just ask you, and I... I I missed it earlier on, but were your was your family Dodger fans before you decided to become Yankee fans? It's a good question, but the answer is no, they weren't baseball fans at all, although my father was born in Brooklyn in that pennant-winning 1916 season, but he and his friends uh, growing up in Brooklyn, baseball wasn't one of their interests. So I was first-generation baseball fan, uh, for me, back in the 50s, it was a matter of this is what my friends were interested in. I wanted to be part of the conversation. So I became a baseball fan. My fans, my, my family was very supportive of my career, and um, they became baseball fans at long last through me. Right. Well, thank you, Marty. I appreciate that, and you're welcome back anytime. Good to talk to you. Good interview. Enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Marty, and uh, thank you all for, lis uh, for listening. Uh, we will talk to you next time. Take care. And you too. Thanks for it. <laughs>